Hello, and welcome to the hearing. I'm John. And from Chicago's north side, I am Scotto. And before we get to this week's album, we have a discussion topic that, well, the one you didn't pick last time. (laughs) You know, I listened to some of those bonus tracks from St. Vincent, Mm. and they're pretty good, actually. (laughs) Except for the the stupid remix, of course, of uh, Digital Witness. Mm. No one needs a remix, but, you know... Maybe I'll revisit. By the way, just a note, I had to move my computer, um, so we might sound a little different tonight. I might be a little scattered because I'm hearing myself in my left ear, which is a setting I normally have off. Yeah. (laughs) So that's throwing me a touch. Anyway, the discussion topic in question, should Spotify start selling music? I thought about this um, last week. Um, I was looking for the new Hiromi album, uh, Sonic Wonderland, which I, again, highly recommend. Um, And I didn't expect it to be on Bandcamp, so I figured I'll just go to iTunes. Thing is, I never use iTunes to listen to music, or very, very rarely. So I was kind of reluctant. I ended up Googling it and found it on Bandcamp, so I was happy about that. But... I was thinking, you know, if Spotify sold music, I could buy it and listen to it in the same place. They could pull a Bandcamp, essentially, and offer the artists a better cut on sales to kind of make up for the shit that they give artists for streams. So is that how it would work? You'd have to pay in order to hear it? Or is it just kind of a Bandcamp thing where you can hear it and then... Well, I think uh, it would be in addition if you want to support the artist, you can yeah. buy it here. You know? Yeah, that's that's totally a great idea, just to offer that mm-hmm. chance for... Uh, I mean, they even could skim a little bit off it, but... You know, well, I mean, <laughs> they would take a cut, like anybody yeah. does. Bandcamp takes, I think it's 15%, um, which is the best offer anybody gets um, yeah. from anybody. Um but, and sadly, though, Bandcamp has been bought yeah. out, from what I understand, so I don't know how long yeah, this will uh, last. <laughs> Anthony Fantano has done a couple of videos recently about both Spotify and Bandcamp. Um, Spotify is going to be actually screwing artists a little more than they were. Really? Uh, le- they're reducing the cut, I think, a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. There's no word about major changes to Bandcamp in terms of their deals with artists, but they got rid of a lot of the editorial staff who writes about, you know, up-and-coming artists. Uh, so, you know, promotions aren't going to be what they used to. Nobody was promoting me, so I don't really care, <laughs> personally. <laughs> um, I, th- I just think it would make Spotify a little more useful, um, you know, fit it in with the merch. Yeah, improve their make, image, too. Yeah, and offer artists a better deal, help their image among you know artists and labels would we really have people though like uh, sending extra cash to taylor swift or something <laughs> people buy the albums well of course right uh, you know but i just can't imagine somebody going i mean as as good as she is with her money and stuff <laughs> i just can't imagine somebody going i'm gonna send her an extra 20 bucks to like support if Again, going with the Bandcamp principle. If yeah. you knew Spotify was offering the artists a better cut than iTunes, and you know you could stream it either way, so you're only buying it to support the artists, I think you'd probably go to the place that's offering them a better cut. Yeah. So, 
you know, it's it, this is not going to lead to anything. I, I doubt it. So, it's just a thought. Anyway, smart marketing. So, hmm. on to this week's album, which is from 1971. Who's next? By the Who. The Who are yes are they're apparently still together. Uh, <laughs> an English rock band formed in London as the Detours in 1962. They're considered one of the most influential rock bands of the 20th century, and their contributions to rock music include the development of the Marshall Stack guitar amplifier and large public address systems, the use of synthesizers, advancements in guitar, bass, and drum technique, and the development of the rock opera. I was, I won't say surprised by that list, but I had just forgotten. (laughs) Yeah, these, I mean... I used to drive around with like a greatest hits uh, thing, and it's just the fact that it went from like the early '60s to the early '80s. Yeah. It's just like what the fuck. <laughs> like it started with um, the song "Can't Explain," and I think it ended with "You Better You Bet." Right? Yeah. Who's next? Or not? Who's next? Um, that was like it's, it's hard. hard. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. Was their last album? I think I think yeah. it was eighty four. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Where the kids playing Space Invaders instead mm-hmm. of pinball on the album I cover. think actually one of those songs, Eminence Front, was like the first two song I ever heard. I can't remember which one that's from. I, I'm pretty sure it's from It's Hard. Yeah, I almost thought that was a, a Townsend solo, but no, I that's mean, that's the one hard. I remember. The video because yeah. Daltrey was playing guitar. Oh right, right, yeah. Who's Next is the band's fifth studio album. It developed from an abandoned multimedia rock opera called Lifehouse that was conceived by the group's guitarist, Pete Townsend, as a follow-up to the band's 1969 album, Tommy. The project was cancelled due to its complexity as well as conflicts with Kit Lambert, the band's manager at the time, but several of the songs were salvaged without the connecting story elements and released on subsequent albums throughout the following decades. Eight of the songs on Who's Next were from Lighthouse, the lone exception being the John Russell penned My Wife. Lighthouse was eventually released on September 15th of this year as an 11-disc, wow. 155-track box set. Wait a minute, though. It, it doesn't... I mean, that's just like bonus tracks and stuff, yeah. not like the actual No, no, they didn't story. actually finish it. It's all of the demos and yeah. all of the stuff that they did put down in connection to Lifehouse. Whose Next was released on August 2nd, 1971 on Track Records and Decca Records. If Track Records was an intentional pun, I have to applaud that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it could be. Produced by The Who and Glenn Johns and features Roger Daltrey on vocals, Pete Townsend on guitar, vocals, organ, synthesizer, and piano on Bob O'Reilly, John Russell on bass, brass, vocals and pianos on my, piano on My Wife, Keith Moon on drums and percussion, with additional musicians, Dave Arbus, violin on Bob O'Reilly, and Nicky Hopkins, piano on The Song Is Over and Getting In Tune. More Nicky Hopkins. More, but, what's hmm? that? More Nicky Hopkins. Wasn't uh, he on uh, the Runaways album? Oh, right. I think I think that's the the one. Reminder: I don't edit any songs into our episodes for copyright reasons. But on our blog at johnandscott.wordpress.com, you'll find links to Who's Next on Spotify and YouTube, so you can follow along if you'd like. Track one: Bob O'Reilly. I like how that opening synth line at the beginning just evolves. 
And I always always wondered which came first, that that the song or the sequencing. You know, mm-hmm. is that actual sequencing or is he actually playing that in the recording all the way through? I kind of have a feeling that it's it's not necessarily sequencing, but it's a modular synth, so it's all due to uh, pulses of electric electricity. Because right, I don't know if they even had sequencing. No. In 1971, this is such early days for synthesizers, and uh, you know this this album, of course, shows because he's just fucking around mm-hmm. with them from right. the, from the start to finish. With a modular synth, you don't play it with you know a keyboard or a guitar or something right. like that. You just uh, adjust how often an electrical pulse hits it, and then goes through all of the modules that affect the sound. <laughs> Yeah, check the episode of Everson Lake and Palmer and the story of Lucky Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I also like that it takes for a while for the guitar to come in. Yeah. On um, great distorted tone, of course. Um, I always preferred Townsend's voice to Daltrey's, I have to admit. Really? I just, I never connected with Daltrey's voice. He's just kind of loud to me. I just, I don't find anything compelling about his tone. I mean, the the contrast between the two is always interesting because you know Daltrey is such power, and Townsend is such you know quiet you know yeah. low desperation you know every time he sings. Yeah, Townsend's more. I, I won't say more emotive because you know Daltrey is is emotive, but yeah, uh, there's more pathos in Townsend's voice. So I've just always connected to it. Like, I never got that in Pinball Wizard where he just cuts in with, like, how do you think he does it? And it's kind of like, why? Why do you need to be in this beat? Let's just let Roger sing it. <laughs> now, on on the other hand, I think there should have been a law that Pete Townsend should never be allowed to take solos. <laughs> he is one of the greatest rhythm guitarists of all time writes great songs and and i will say those little punctuated leads he plays throughout the album yeah. are nice right but when he gets a full-on solo it's just babbling noise yeah we'll, we'll get to that one this one i'm gonna take as strongest because it's just that rightfully iconic song you know mm. i mean there's so much packed into f- five minutes of this I mean, yeah, you could probably, you know, update this without that whatever synthesizer thing they did and just do that on a guitar. Uh, but the lyrics of this one, the guitar playing, the, the of course, the rhythm section, just it all comes together. Probably the best on this whole album, if you think about it. Like that violin part that comes in after the solo. Um, and then, right, you get the violin at the end. It's kind of like a Middle Eastern thing. And I yeah. will say, I, I've i never been a big Who fan. There's like two song, two Who songs that I really like. One of them is on this album. Um, but they're generally just a little too noodly for me. <laughs> but I will give it to this one. It's not as noodly as most of their music. Um, I also like that nice sudden stop. Oh, yeah. And this one, after like three listens, I was reminded of the... Uh post 9-11 concert for america in madison mm. square garden if there was any song you had to listen to from that show it's this one there are a variety of artists that did it that was the one where it was like everybody performed it uh-huh. and 
this was 30 years old at the time and they brought it and mm. the first responders in the audience just went fucking nuts <laughs> nice <laughs> also Bennington on Sirius XM had a great parody of this uh, for Game of Thrones uh, called Tits and Dragons <laughs> and I can't hear they're all that the, they're all yeah. wasted line without thinking of theirs because it was they're all naked <laughs> Well, I mean, if you want to go to the end of Game of Thrones, they're all wasted. <laughs> well, that's true. And lyrically, you got to hand it to Townsend. Um, he, this one, I, I didn't realize where he got the idea from this. It was Woodstock. Okay. And just a field of, you know, mm-hmm. there were a bunch of people just lying around on the field at the end. Right. And uh, it's kind of where he got the light what was it lifehouse or lighthouse mm. idea from okay and but they had like you know there were just people lying around brain damaged mm. literally brain damaged because they took right the brown acid mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't discover them until like it was way too late right track two bargain this is my pick for favorite one of the two who songs i like the other being 515 oh i love 515 <laughs> Yeah, that is probably my favorite Who song, too. Love the volume swells on the guitar in the beginning. Again, he does play some nice leads as long as it's not a proper yeah. solo. As, you know, right. If it's composed, <laughs> it's good. Um, some really n- nice guitar layering in this one. Good punchy bass tone. but And I think this is my issue with The Who, because you know, if you listen to this show at all, you know I'm very rhythmically focused. I always talk about the bass and drums and whistle and moon individually two of the greatest to ever pick up their instruments but it's like they never listen to each other (laughs) on this one though they do go very well together on this one they're they're kind of competing almost on top of each other but that's the problem they don't lock in and really form a unit they're just individually doing their own thing it's a it makes this one really in fact i think it makes a lot of the who songs very interesting where they're just like there was like some old video i saw not that long ago of they're they're performing on some tv show and of course it's lip syncing and moon is trying to upstage Daltrey while he's singing lead vocals i mean he's like acting like he's singing along with him and uh-huh. just doing these very elaborate gestures with the drumsticks that are just completely unnecessary. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, they they it's a competition and yeah. uh this song I think it comes through you know, some of the best work of that. But I, I was complaining about um a little bit, but I do like that lead bass in the bridge. Always yeah. love a Townsend vocal. Um the synth lead in the middle seems a little out of place. Oh, yeah. They just kind of uh, yeah. crowbarred a synth into this one. He really just was obsessed with uh, with synths, and uh, maybe he could have laid off on this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this one's probably one of the worst use of synths on the album, I feel, because it's just, it's dated, and what are you going to do kind At of thing. it's short. It's just a little melodic thing in the middle. Yeah. It wasn't necessary, though. And the ending, I think, goes on a bit too long. It just gets a little too noodly. It's strange. It kind of, the way it just fades out, kind of. But mm-hmm. not fades out. They fade out their playing. Yeah, yeah. They don't get faded out. Right. 
which is very i was thinking and it made me listen to uh the man who sold the world which was like a year before this and it reminds me a lot of uh some of that mm-hmm. yeah yeah i can see that um who was the lead guitar on that was it Fripp? uh no i think it was visconti oh, okay but it's a similar tone am i getting that right visconti would be the guitar player no, right visconti no he was the bass player and eventually a producer um Oh, why am I blanking on Bowie's guitar player? <laughs> Might have been Bowie himself. He did play a lot of guitar on, his, on some of his Yeah, stuff. but not like that. Oh, well, no. Let's... Yeah, true. Um, that's why I asked if it was Rep. But anyway, whoever it was, there is a similar tone. Track three, Love Ain't For Keeping. One of three songs that I didn't know, like, the back of my hand on this album going in. That was Mick Ronson. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, like Groove on this one. Like all the acoustic leads, I think Entwistle just makes it a bit too noisy, um, as do all those background ooze. <laughs> I'm always surprised when I hear the Who doing like a country folk sort of thing like this. Mm-hmm. You know, always have them pegged as mods or even progs. Right. I gotta say, I liked all the acoustic stuff. Yeah. On the album. Yeah, they, they always kind of like, oh, they can do that too. I, I like how... I've always liked them for just going for the eclectic, you know, and approaching different styles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Prague is certainly fitting um, because, yeah. you know, they practically were, were, were one of the first to the concept album. I don't know if Moody Definitely. Blues, Beatles, it's debatable. I mean, right, but they they took it to a different level where they were telling a story. Oh, um, sure. was, it, was it a coherent story? Ah. <sighs> Probably not. But, I'm actually you know. not. Aside from 515, I don't know much from Quadrophenia. The quadra I think the Quadrophenia. That that the story isn't as detailed, so they get away with it. But I always thought the story of Tommy is like it starts out strong, uh-huh. and then it's like, well, what happens here? <laughs> well, quadra- Quadrophenia was first, though, right? No, I think Tommy was what? at okay. uh, Quadrophenia was. And he, like, I mean, he somehow becomes, like, this messiah figure and stuff like that mm-hmm. at the end. And there's, like, and I'm not sure what his followers do. And just, uh, yeah, I guess I have to go see the musical eventually. But <laughs> I know they, have to. they were one of the competitors to the first rock opera, along with the Beatles yeah. and the Beach Boys and the Moody Boys. I think they're a huge influence on the prog bands that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Not to mention all around the same playing. time. I know they're a big thing, uh, influence on Genesis, that's for sure. Hmm. Track four, My Wife. Like the groove on this one, great guitar tone. Ant Missile's got a better voice than I expected. If I were being a contrarian, I'd probably go with this as my chick for strongest. But, uh, but I mean, it's just the lyrics are hilarious uh-huh. and troubling at the same time yeah. about his um, wife is going to kill him he got drunk and didn't go home for too long and now he's worried that his wife is going to kill him to the point where he he wants to get a gun <laughs> uh but yeah you have this kind of almost a hard rock song and then all of a sudden you get horns in the middle <laughs> horns played by ant muscle yeah as was the horn riff on 515 i looked into it that was ant muscle wow okay Moon, of course, is overplaying. Um, is where I have a yes. where they just don't sound like they're listening to each other. 
it was a cross between him and Ginger Baker that mm. was the influence of Animal. Yeah, <laughs> of yeah. the Muppet Show. I mean, Moon again, one of the greatest of all time. Certainly one of the most influential. Neil Peart wouldn't do what he does or did without Moon. So you know, I appreciate what came after him. I just think he should have focused on Groove a little more. <laughs> Uh, yeah instead it was just kind of like oh and mm. someone's released animal from the i mean it's the red hair and then for for ginger and then yeah. the eyebrows right. and for moon well and the flailing for both of them well yeah yeah <laughs> but you know i mentioned uh Peart. um getty and neil both overplayed but well, yeah. they locked in you know they they paid attention to the groove. Yeah. They didn't sacrifice groove for showing off. These two always showed off instead of <laughs> really locking in and grooving. It's fun to think of that, though, that a, a rhythm section who are normally in the background mm-hmm. are just kind of like, nah, you guys can uh, yeah, yeah. do all the... <laughs> I mean, I'm complaining about Townsend Solas, but he really was the most understated one in the band yes he had to smash guitars to like get attention yeah <laughs> he had to because who's paying attention to him right you know unless he's doing a windmill gesture mm-hmm. or singing that because these two maniacs behind them are just going off on their own i mean but he's also the guy who pretty much wrote everything yes yes Track five, the song is over. Interesting synth sounds on this one. Some nice melodic little short bits of lead guitar. I like the verse vocal. Um, this is where I have the note about Daltrey just being loud and not really compelling to me. Um, yet another pointless guitar solo. It was nice to get back to Townsend's vocal, but I, I think it just goes on a bit too long. It's kind of an early power ballad, you yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, it... Uh... Feels like a lot of people ripped this off eventually. It probably, you know, it'd be it was it was up there for weakest uh, if I were in a pinch. But I think I found one that is. <laughs> it was my weakest until we get to track six, getting in tune. I love the lead bass in the intro, and it has one of my favorite opening lyrics of all time. I'm singing this note because it fits in well with the chords I'm playing. <laughs> It's the lyrics are intentionally on the nose, I suppose, but it just goes nowhere. It progresses. Um, I like how it goes from ballad to just straight up hard blues rock towards the end. Um, and just Entwistle kills it with the bass. He he just noodles way too much for me, and (laughs) that getting in tune with the straight and narrow line, particularly for. A counterculture band just too many repeats now that's the thing with this it's a lot of this album is anti-counterculture you know especially culminating in the final track yeah. uh yeah. It, it's about and the opening track it, it's all about how th- this isn't what we thought we were getting right <laughs> you know right. we were kind of disappointed by all mm. of this but I feel like this one could have been half as long. It's yeah, just the, too much random jamming. The the way I just the way it builds though, it, it kind of needs that room to to progress, 
or else it would just be too too sudden, you know, to go from one to the other. They were looking for kind of a an even <laughs> progression instead of a jagged, you know, start to finish. It's just too many repeats, too much, you know, just pointlessness. It doesn't, like I said, doesn't really say anything, doesn't really go anywhere musically. Eh. Track seven, going mobile. Which would be my weakest. I had a feeling. <laughs> if you didn't pick the the ballad, I knew I knew it was going to be this one. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just too much Townsend vocals. Uh, they kind of this is as close as they get to goofy on this one. I feel like the acoustic part. It's got an interesting groove. Like the verse melody. I love Townsend's vocals. Um, the lyrics are utterly ridiculous, but. I'm curious how they would have worked in context of the Lifehouse story. Well, it's, uh, you know, this aging, you know, wandering hippie kind of thing. I think he does the theme of the wanderer better with the, the song The Seeker. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but th- this is just kind of all right, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that solo at the end of yeah. this. Oh my, that's bad. I, I think I'm done <laughs> criticizing the solos, but yeah, it's just, yeah they're never this good. This was the worst. This was like, come on, Jimi Hendrix gonna sue. <laughs> Track gate behind blue eyes. Great acoustic opening. I gotta say, I've been criticizing Daltrey, but this is one of his best moments. Yeah, he is the performer of, of a singer, you know. Yeah, yeah. Some great harmonies on this one. Love the chorus melody. The bass tone may be a little too punchy for all the acoustics, but still a good part. Um, More great harmonies in verse two. Love the line, no one bites back as hard on their anger. None of my pain and woe can show through. I've always been confounded by this one because, I mean, the setup's very prog. The themes are very deep, Mm -hmm. but it's always felt a bit clunky to me, you know? Uh, It's this beautiful acoustic ballad yeah. about someone who is filled with rage. Love that juxtaposition. But then yeah. it goes into this weird loud section, which right. is kind of a nice change of pace. But the second couplet is just ridiculous. <laughs> yes. If I swallow anything evil, put your fingers down my throat. And if I shiver, please give me a blanket. Keep me warm. Let me wear your coat. <laughs> kind of i mean it comes across as juvenile but of course it's from the this you know character's perspective yeah, true. and even in context of the album it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense yeah i can't imagine uh, e. townsend didn't want this as a single for that reason because mm-hmm. it just it, it just doesn't make any sense on its own without right. outside of the concept that he had actually had originally i think and finally, won't get fooled again. I love the opening synth part. Mm. Actually, it's not just the opening. I think it goes throughout the entire song. Yeah. I, I almost forgot to write notes on this because I'd heard it so many times. <laughs> this is definitely the best use of keyboards on the album because mm. it builds this atmosphere yeah. that you're just like... <laughs> mm-hmm. Great guitar tone, nice groove, nice melodic bass part, especially in the chorus. like the organ part in the break. The claps sound a little bit silly. Hmm. I mean, it's, I guess it, it kind of fits in with it. It's just percussive and yeah. kind of, it's very tribal. You know, a lot of it is about 
just the tribalism of it all. And I think it's about two minutes longer than it should have been. Yeah, but... <laughs> like, it, six, six and a half would have been good. They didn't need to go to eight and a half. But that, I mean, it's that middle section where it's just, where it goes back to the intro pretty much. Well, no, I was looking at the time as I was listening to it. I am? Nothing was too long. Everything was changing around the t- when I got tired of it. It worked nicely. And then it gets to about six minutes and they're just kind of jamming. And okay, I'll allow for another half a minute of this, but then you got to <laughs> cut it out. <laughs> and then, and then they the went on for part, another two and a half. The funny part is just the the lyrics and the climax are just meet the new boss, same as the old yeah. boss, <laughs> which is a good which, line at the start is. of the song, but you don't need to bring it back. Uh, uh, did they do that at the beginning? I'm pretty sure that's the opening lyric. Oh, I thought... Hmm. If, if that, that line only shows up at the end, then I take that back, but... I thought that was the culmination of it all, you know? It's just that whole... Seeing those hippies at the time mm-hmm. and how they, you know, all became mini Nixons in the end, you know? He just saw the insurance salesmen and stockbrokers and the... And he was he was spot on. <laughs> well, and it's not just that; it's it's every new regime becomes the same thing. Yeah, it's yeah. all happened again. It all it's all happened before. It all happened again. Yeah. So, do you recommend it? I definitely do. Uh, there's a few clunkers on here, but I think it's mostly solid. I'm inclined to recommend it because it's a very important album. But most of the songs are so ubiquitous that everybody's That's true. definitely all, already heard most of them. And so, you know, like Dark Side, if you've somehow not heard it, then I guess <laughs> I recommend it. But if otherwise, you know, if you have any understanding, any familiarity with classic rock, you know most of this, so you know if it's for you. And I mean, there were only, if you think about it, there's only some good surprises on here you know aside from the ubiquitous ones mm-hmm. you know the bob o'reilly yeah. bargain and uh won't get fooled I, I think the only good surprises were really i mean well i guess loving for keeping yeah. my wife and uh i didn't mind getting in tune either oh I blue eyes of course is ubiquitous but That's it for Who's Next. Until next time, we'll be reviewing Rising by Rainbow. Finally getting to this one. (laughs) You know, a few weeks of of palette cleansers, which I think evolved nicely back to, you know, where Rainbow would fit in without getting tiring. Yeah. Until then, of course, always remember to forget where you go in life. There you are. There you are. (laughs) 